Hello and welcome to the Powering Independence podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin. Today I'll be joined by Tobias Donna, Vice President of Fidelity Investments. Tobias leads Fidelity Investment Center for Family Engagement. The topic of today's conversation is making the uncomfortable comfortable, how to discuss the meaning of wealth as a financial advisor. Hello and welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Philbin, and today I'm joined by Tobias Donnett, Vice President who leads Fidelity's Investment Center for Family Engagement. Very excited about today's episode. We've got lots to talk about. Uh, Tobias, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to the conversation. Why don't we start with your background? Could you, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so... Uh, I think my background has two parts to it. So let me start by uh, kind of deciphering that. Uh, I've had a bit of a unique journey to getting to where I am here today. It started in Canada in a small family business, a bakery. And, you know, now it's at one of the largest financial services firms in the world. And um, part, let me start with part two of, of that journey. Uh, about seven, eight years ago, uh, when I was in Fidelity Consulting, uh, Tim Habershon, a mentor of mine, uh, a former professor of mine, you know, kind of said, hey, listen, I'm, I'm building this, this center and I'd love for you to come join me and, and help me kind of figure this out. And, uh, and so together we, we went on this journey. We started by building programs to train uh, advisors that uh, served high net worth families. And the program was, frankly, uh, so successful that Fidelity kind of said, look, we need to figure out how to how to build this out and democratize it uh, for advisors and clients kind of uh, across the ecosystem. And so that, that's what the last uh, the last seven years has been about. Um, so today I lead uh, Fidelity Center for Family Engagement. Uh, our vision is to transform the multi-generational um, wealth space and uh, and you can think about that in two ways. Conceptually, uh, we live at the intersection of psychology and financial services. And then functionally, um, you know, we live at that intersection of the multi-generational advisor and, and their families. And so um, as a center, we, we, we do in that capacity three things. Uh, we develop new thought leadership, articles, curriculum, tools. Uh, we coach and train advisors uh, and prof- in financial services professionals uh, to build and apply relationship-based practices. And we deliver directly to families, uh, do family meetings, workshops, and events. Yeah. You said something interesting that I'd like to, uh, to ask you a bit about. You said sure. that family uh, had run a bakery. Could you tell me a little bit about the bakery, what what kind of products your uh, your family was making? What did you learn from that aspect of your life? Yeah, so that, that's kind of part one. The, the the bakery fourth generation started in Europe and and uh, and came it came to Toronto to Canada and and we made bread for grocery stores and food service businesses. So restaurants, uh, anybody who would make a sandwich or serve bread in some capacity. Uh, and then obviously grocery stores, our business, my mom was part of the revolution uh, of taking fresh baked, uh, scratch baked bread out of restaurants and grocery stores. 
And so what we did is we produced it on uh, mass in you know 150,000 square foot facility uh, just outside of Toronto. And we baked it, froze it, and shipped it um, around uh, Canada and the U.S. So that locally, uh, you know, grocery stores or, or, or chefs could just take the bread out of the freezer, bake it, rebake it, and have their own fresh baked product right there. Interesting. And as you grew up within the family business, um, there must have been some lessons that you were able to extrapolate and use in your current work with financial advisors. Do you want to share a few of those? Yeah, you know, there, there are two things that, that I would say, you know, really impacted me uh, through that process. The first was leaving the family business. Um, it's a pretty emotionally charged thing. And, and I know a lot of the clients are, are, our advisors are serving, you know, uh, come from a family business or are running a business and, and family and business is, is tough. And, um, so let, let me touch on that a little bit. The other part that I'm going to talk about is when my family sold the business, we became a family of wealth of, um, uh, of enough that, that we really had to start to think about what it meant for our family and how we manage it. And, um, you know, I, my wife and I were talking about this as we were thinking about the podcast and I was just saying, you know, how lucky I am to do the work I do because, um, my brother and my mother and I were still very close and, uh, and, and that's not by accident. Uh, a lot of families struggle, uh, either as a family business or in, you know, dealing with liquidity and managing the fair equal and the and the voice and the decision making and i don't know how we would have done without you know without advisors with uh, a set of skills and capabilities that really helped us navigate that i like that point that you made around fair and equal because i think sometimes there's this perhaps a misconception that equality and the concept of fair somehow are equivalent. So when you're thinking about a family business, more than likely, there are going to be stakeholders that will remain in the business. There may be stakeholders that want to exit, uh, similar to your path. And so when and if there is a liquidity event, are there ways in which people think about different compensation structures? And how do you get over the hurdles? Because it is an emotional situation whereby maybe from just a pure dollar or pure asset amount, it's not equal, but it's okay. And it's okay to have a conversation around what really happens with the business. Can you talk a little bit about the work, um, if, if that concept of fair and equal plays into the work that you do with financial advisors? Yeah, so uh, let me take one step back. Uh, money money, wealth, estate planning is incredibly intimate space, right? And it's a word that's really funny. We use it a lot in, in the work we do. Uh, people have this kind of adverse reaction to the word intimacy and they have these views of it, but, but it is because it, it has the, uh, you know, money, wealth, it has the ability to, to, to strain relationships or grow relationships. It's rooted in, in your wishes and your fears, about the future, about your current realities, about your current capabilities. And so when we talk about fair and equal, um, it's at very often for the families that we work with, it is a major concern for them. 
because they have multiple children, they have siblings, they have parents, in-laws. There are a lot of different stakeholders involved in the family wealth system. And what does fair and equal actually mean? And we have a rule of thumb in our center, and, we, and it basically says that, um, that fairness is in the eye of the beholder, which means it, it is a, a perception. Right. And when something is a perception, it means you actually have to talk about it. You can't just say this is equal. You know, for many years, uh, I have a brother who, who also is in the family business. And, you know, for many years, I think if you had asked my brother, um, was everything fair, uh, he would have said no. But if you looked at the accounting of life, it was equal. And so one of the things that I, I work with families and advisors on is I think we have to be very careful about how absolute we get uh, around fair and equal. Holding a ledger does not mean you're being fair. It might mean you're being equal. And uh, fairness is more of a conversation. Fairness is about being in dialogue, understanding the intimacy of relationships and, uh, and, and how, how perceptions and stories and views influence um, whether we think things are fair or not. Totally agree. So Tobias, when you think about our industry, just like any other industry, it continues to change. And again, similar to other industries, it, it seems to be picking up pace in which those changes are occurring. So traditionally, uh, we had the broker, the financial consultant, the wealth management advisor, the holistic uh, wealth manager, the financial planner. So things have evolved over time whereby advisors are expected to become more proficient in multiple areas of a person's financial life. I think that's incredibly um, important because the industry is changing and the work that you've been doing with advisors to be able to allow them to have deeper conversations is critical. Why do you think it's so important um, for advisors to look beyond just the financial planning and investment management aspects of their li or their clients' lives and start to get deeper? It's a great question, Austin. You gave us so much of the answer there. Um, and it's rooted in the demographics of, of what's kind of where we are in time at the moment, right? Our, our clients um, uh, are, are predominantly the boomer generation. They hold, you know, I've read, you know, as much as 70% of the investable assets. And, uh, and, and there's this clever line that, that I've read before that says, you know, boomers, uh, you know, the financial services industry was built by the boomers for the boomers. And so if you kind of take that frame, then you want to look at how has the boomers needs evolved and where will they go into the future? And I think, you know, the comment about the broker dealer, or, you know, you even go back into, you know, uh, Hollywood and look at movies like, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street, and you start to think about it was about products, it was about selling, it was about solutions, it was a lot about expertise. It was um, an industry that there wasn't a lot of transparency or understanding. And so um, it was about kind of growing, it was about building income and growing that while they worked. Mm -hmm. And I know that's a really simple way to think about it, but but that's where it was for a long time. And so 
the, the industry formed to, to meet that need. And now, you know, the boomer population by the end of 2030 will be over the age of 70. And, uh, and that just means that um, succession, transition, transfer is imminent. But it also means that they are in a different place in their own lives before they transfer. And that is they're about uh, distribution and they're about planning. And those are very different, you know, than income and growth. And so our advisors have to be able to start to think about what does it mean to engage with a client with where they are? What is their current all of life and how do I support it? Um, Fidelity has done a lot of work in this space, right? You know, the, the Fidelity Advice Value Stack talks about the fundamentals are still the foundation, right? Managing money and achieving goals. But if we can't climb the value stack and meet our clients at peace of mind and fulfillment, then um, then we're going to miss the mark. And and so that's what's going to demographically happen over the next 10 years. But then, you know, there and beyond, you're going to see even bigger shifts. You know, the modern family, you know, I was reading just the other day that almost 40% of marriages today are remarriages, mm-hmm. right? So the construct of a family is going to look different. Um, women are going to own, you know, two thirds of the assets. And so the client of the future is, is going to be very different. And, and we have to start to think about it more as a system. It's not an individual primary decision maker who I can talk to and we can sell things to. It is a family that's trying to navigate a very intimate topic. They're trying to figure out how to grow, transfer, make decisions all around money, wealth, and estate planning. And as advisors, whether to the, the affluent uh, or, or the everyday, we have to be able to be in that conversation and link all of life to financial decision-making. Right. Totally agree. And, and we talked a little bit about this before uh, we started uh, today's conversation, but if you look at historically the way in which a financial advisor may have become successful in their career, it was very systematic. Uh, a, a lot of the practice management uh, material that you read focuses on numbers. So if you do a thousand cold calls uh, in a week, maybe you get you know 50 prospects if you're able to set up 10 meetings and then you're o- able to open three accounts. And within those three accounts, there's $500,000 of investable assets and you're able to purchase XYZ product that's going to generate revenue. And if you get enough revenue, then you hit a certain grid rate. And if you hit a grid rate, then you receive more compensation. So it's very, very systematic. And I think what we're talking about is while that conceptual framework has helped to create a number of significant practices within the wealth management industry, the industry as a whole and the client desire have changed so that it doesn't have to just be about certain steps to generate revenue, that you're able potentially to have even more success if you change the way in which you interact with prospects and clients. I don't know if you spend much time talking to advisors about this concept, but I'd certainly be interested in in your point of view on it. Yeah, it's it's. I think you're spot on, Austin. I think uh, at the heart, what we're talking about is 
is how we think about what our role is. And if we think that our role is uh, to be a, an expert who tells you what to do, if we think of our role as somebody who um, sells uh, a ticket, if we think about our role as um, a financial services provider, it's going to create certain behaviors. It, it's kind of this concept that, um, that came out of systems thinking and a bunch of academics who said that um, the behaviors we we do are rooted um, in the way we see the world, the way we think about the world, and, and those are called mental models. Yeah. And so if our mental model is we're an expert, then we're going to move into tell mode and, and we're going to try and sell and we're going to try and push. Uh, if our mental model is rooted in something else, then, um, th- then that will impact our behavior. And it's kind of the fundamental kind of belief here. Can we change our view of what it means to be an advisor because our clients are changing we can't just change our practices i can't tell you how many advisors i've talked to who said well shoot you know let's just go and hire some millennials to serve the millennials because i don't get them or let's hire more women because um that will help you know connect with women we're not trying um we're actually not getting to the root of what the issue is which is that we have to change our views of what we're doing. And so what we spend time with with advisors on is the mental model of communicating to transact versus engaging to connect. It's two very different views. If 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 I'm if literally I I just kind of have this view that I'm going to transact with you on something, right. I'm going to speak to you a certain way. But if my job is to connect with you, to connect your all of life to the financial decision making, that, that we're doing together, then I'm going to have a much more um, holistic conversation with you. Uh, and, and mental models are at the heart of how you do that. Yeah, I love that. I see it, what you just said is something that permeates not only in the financial industry, but you know, just about anywhere in life, which is, and this is something that I've learned, but I also struggle with on a regular basis. It's hard to be in a room or uh, in a meeting, on a phone call, even now, even right now, and to not want to substantiate credibility by proving how smart you are or by, you know, I I liked your thought about uh, transacting or telling versus engaging with someone. That's one of the biggest struggles, I think, that you know, particularly people in our industry, even myself have, is how do you have enough self-reflection, enough humility to understand that every moment of every day is not just about you and that it's important when you're engaging, particularly with clients, that you spend the time to truly listen to all of the things that they're talking about before you start this cogwheel in your brain to problem solve. Because I know that that takes a lot of work on my end, because the moment that I hear what I think is a problem, I want to immediately say, and this is the answer to your problem. So that person's like, wow, Austin's a really smart dude. Thank you for sharing that. How do you, one, do you see that um, in your work um, generally? And two, how do you try to coach people through that? And I know maybe it has to do a little bit with helping them to understand their mental models, but 
do you use any, any more blunt force? Like what are the tactics? That you use? <laughs> well, you know, I just build off what you just said at the end there, right? When yeah. I see a nail, I want to become the biggest hammer around. Right. And part of the problem is, you know, in our industries, uh, we start to see a lot of nails. Um, we, you know, we, we call this kind of the expert trap. I, I was, uh, doing some work with a group of advisors and they kind of said to me, uh, you know, but the stories are all the same. When I've heard it once, I know where it's going. I know what to tell them. I know what to advise them. And, and our, our brains just start seeing the same nail over and over again. And so we apply the same hammer and the same pressure and the same kind of solution. And, and that's when we're engaging to transact. That's not when we are communicating to connect. If we're communicating to connect to your point, Austin, you're, you're, you're there with me. You're listening. You care. And, and the word, and this is the second part um, that I think is really important. The word you use is we have some humility. Mm-hmm. And there's a book that we use in a lot of our programs called Humble Inquiry by a gentleman named Edgar Schein. And it talks a lot about um, in the very beginning about the culture that we grow up in, the culture we live in is a tell culture, an expert culture, a problem solving culture. We gain credibility and we build credibility by demonstrating our value, by demonstrating our knowledge. And, um, and this book talks about, you know, what if, what if we demonstrate um, our value by asking great questions? What if we um, demonstrate our dependence on other people uh, through the way we engage in a more humble way? And I think that's at the heart of what you're talking about, which is advisors um, need to think a little bit about what does it mean to bring some humility to their role? And one of our beliefs is if, if, if our mental model can be that my job is to communicate, to connect, and understand where you are, empathize with you around whatever financial decision we're making, better understand it, then I can actually be more surgical with my expertise. We have this, this wonderful example, and, and this is going to sound very kind of basic and simple, but a you know, client comes in and says, I want to think about how I can help my son in the future yep. as a young child. And the advisor, you know, eager sees the nail and says, for someone like you, a 529 is a great option. And here's the benefits and here's how it works. And here's how we get it started. And here's how we do it. And this lady, you know, she finally gets the courage, the vulnerability to say, hey, um, I appreciate, you know, you clearly know a lot about this. And, you know, my son is on the spectrum and I don't know that he'll ever go to college. And and this happens across the board. It happens all the time. You know, you open a 520, you know, think about a, a grandparent who comes in and says, I want to open a 529 and we just get it done. Right. We don't ever talk to them about, is this your first grandchild, your third? How are you doing it differently? What causes you to think about it differently? How's it impacting your retirement thinking? There's so much of a conversation that creates an all of life connection. And, and we as advisors, I think, need to find that humility for ourselves. H- how do we uh, do we execute against it? And how do we trust that, that that's valuable? Right. And that's a big step. Yeah, I'm sure there, there's going to be, you know, a decent percentage of people listening to right now to say that are probably saying in their head, I don't get it. Like, that's, that's not 
what I do or uh, it doesn't make sense to me. That's too touchy feely, whatever there. And I'm, I'm okay with that uh, to a certain extent, but I do think that there is a definitive payoff for advisors and their clients when they're pursuing their, this approach to client relationships. A few right off the top of my head for me is just what, just getting into detail as to what you just said. So I would think that the normal course of action, even for people that are doing in-depth planning is, okay, we're setting up this 529 plan for your grandchild who's 12 years old. And if we put X dollars away, by the time this person is 18 years old, they're going to be able to have this dollar amount to fund their college education and that college. And if they go to a four-year school, that'll be 20%. Etc. So all in the numbers, and maybe maybe there's a conversation around. Oh, you know, what type of school are they thinking about? But I believe what you may be representing is that there's a possibility and an opportunity if you're open to it. When you're even given a nail on a platter that is ready to be hammered in, just to take the time and to add additional context around someone why someone wants to make a decision when that decision is actually made, it will be more meaningful to the client. And it'll also be able to easier to be explained later on, if for whatever reason, the decision doesn't turn out in an optimal fashion. But I'd like to hear for you, when when you talk to advisors, you know, how do you try to um, explain what a potential payoff could be or payout could be for them? You know, Austin, I've, I've heard it all. I've had an advisor, you know, with a, you know, a thick accent, look at me, you know, you know, uh, thick Boston accent, look at me and say, you want me to put a couch in my office? I'm not a therapist, you know, and, you know, you can chuckle and, and I get it. Uh, and, and I, and I, and I understand that maybe, uh, you need to look at your practice and determine, you know, what it is that defines value and, and how you deliver it for your clients. I think what we're saying is that there is a payoff and there is value in this. Um, uh, and, and let me give you a, an adjacent industry to give you an example. Uh, when I was uh, getting my MBA, I had uh, the opportunity to work for a pharmaceutical company uh, out of Switzerland. And the work was around um, uh, getting wider adoption of um, uh, of a puffer for COPD. And I bring this up because the whole project uh, that we were consulting on was about patient-centered healthcare. And it's this revolution in the, in the medical industry that basically says, I get it. You're a doctor. You went to school for eight years. You know more than me. You are an expert. But what happens is if we don't spend time talking to our patients and getting to know them and having them felt understood, what the research shows is even if I prescribe something that won't that will help you stay alive longer, adherence to the treatment plan is lower when I don't feel understood, engaged, connected. Think about that for a minute, Austin. This is like life or death stuff. Right. And you have a healthcare industry that's teaching doctors how to talk to people not because they want to be warm and fuzzy, let's again be really clear about it, because there's an economic benefit for the system. Right. And, 
And even if you take the, the, the most basic view, which is the pharmaceutical company will sell more of its drug when there's higher adherence, if you take a more socialist healthcare system like in Europe, they save the money of people coming into the hospitals for five or seven day stays with kind of breathing attacks, respiratory attacks. Yeah. So why do I say all this? Take it to the financial services industry. We're not doctors, but we are experts. And if we want to have more success with that space, I think we have to think about how we connect with them. Just like the medical industry said, lay down in, in a hospital bed and look up. That's what you're staring at 24 hours of a day. And what do you see? And how do we repaint it so they get a better experience? We have to think about how can we ask better questions? How can we engage differently? And in, in just in the medical space, you know, they say it takes just a few minutes of questions by a doctor for a patient to feel understood. Mm -hmm. What is that in our industry? Just ask a few questions, make some connections, stay in their space. Otherwise, you know, and we've all heard this, the financial services industry is by many viewed as salesy, as pushy, as boilerplate, these aren't my words. These are words that you see in different surveys of clients across the United States, especially as many had to kind of go through the financial crisis uh, of 08, 09. And so when you, when you know that that is how clients might view us, you know, the value of just engaging at a more relational level and, and the further high net worth at a more multi-generational level, the payoff is significant. And to fall on to that because those are very, very powerful. It's also this, this, the answer to this big question around how do you separate yourself from the competition or how do you ensure that your value proposition or, or what you do for clients is more apparent? I mean, I think a very strong and easy way to do that is by engaging with clients in a different way. Because the reality of the situation is, and again, I think I don't think this is a controversial point of view. It's just reality. Most people, most financial advisors have access to a very similar product set. Most financial advisors have the ability to run financial plans using very similar software. And so the differentiating factor is the engagement and the interaction with the clients. There's definitely uh, levels of service. So service matters as well. Like the ability to answer uh, your client's questions in a timely manner, the, the ability to help them um, pay their bills or move money around, that, that's definitely an element. But I think a big differentiating factor would be how do you as a financial advisor engage with your clients in a meaningful way that's differentiated from your competition? And that would be a question if I was listening to this right now that I'd want to ask myself. And so, you know, taking that a step forward, what type of advice would you give to advisors that are interested in pursuing this approach to their client relationships? It's such a good question. And you have me thinking kind of back in my life, Austin, about uh, a lesson I learned in the bread business. And, um, I remember uh, going in to see the chef and talking to him about uh, some of the different bread options we have. And uh, he had more of kind of a, you know, 
mass affluent following. It wasn't a high end kind of it was a sandwich shop of some sort. And, and I finally looked at him and I said, Hey, what's, you know, I appreciate uh, that you're seeing me, but you have a lot of restaurants and a lot going on and your brand doesn't seem to align with kind of the quality of bread that, that I'm trying to sell. And can you help me understand a little bit more about kind of what's driving your desire to work with us? And he looked at me and he gave me one of those looks of, you know, are you stupid kind of looks? And it was good because it was, I was young and I was, you know, making a good life lesson. And he said, everything in my sandwich is commoditized and, and has a price. You know, maybe I can buy a little bit better roast beef. Maybe I can buy a little bit better lettuce. You know, maybe I can buy a little bit better of a tomato. But the bread around the sandwich is the biggest part of a sandwich and the cheapest part of a sandwich. Hmm. And so if I need to make a little bit of a change there and go from a 20-cent roll to a 30-cent roll, even a 40-cent roll, I can create a better experience for my clients without a lot of change on my end. A, not a lot of cost and not a lot of process change. So when my 40 restaurants have to make this sandwich, they know how to handle bread. So I'm not, I'm not adding a lot, but my clients are getting a ton more. And so when I think about it, I think about our advisors, wherever you are uh, in your practice and, and the type of clients you target, the goal is really to say, how do you get lift out of, out of differentiation, but how do you do it at value? And investing a bit of time into relationship skills, reflection skills that can help you be a better advisor purely from the way you talk about things and how you connect feels like a no-brainer to me uh, because it's something that, that you can do. It's rooted in who you are. So it's inherently a point of differentiation and it gets you to a different place with your clients. Um, there's lots of other things you could do to, to differentiate yourself. I just, this one feels, um, it's skill-based. Everybody can do it. Uh, it's not, was I born with EQ or not? Right. You know, if <laughs> I was telling my, you know, my, my, uh, one of my mentors, Tim Habershon, he said to me, he's like, so Tobias, like, can you just look at your wife and say, I don't have any EQ? I, I can't do that. I, like, our life is built on relationships. And let's learn to bring that forward and do it in a skill-based way. Right. It's funny. What, I was listening to this uh, song while I was running the other day. And the lyrics to the song went something like, you say that you can't sing, yet everybody can sing. Yeah. Um, you know, there's another like maxim be comfortable with the uncomfortable but if you take those two uh lines about uh, singing and being comfortable with the uncomfortable i like what you said from just a pure business perspective which is if you're able to curate these skills and it's work you know and to get really it's just like anything else if you want to be really good at this it's a lot of work but it, it's a definitive way in which you could likely improve your ability to close prospects, to engage more with your clients. Like there's not a lot of 
of dollar cost to engage in improving your skills on connectivity. And oh, by the way, I mean, a lot of what we've talked about today relates to financial services, but it's just a good practice overall in your life. Like you should want, I think as human beings, we should want to to be humble and to try to engage deeply with other people and to try to understand more about where people are coming from rather than make snap decisions on how to solve a problem or even snap decisions around judging a particular person. That's, that's I think, like one of the main issues that we're having today from a societal perspective. So for me, all of this work, yeah. even if you don't end up with an extra dollar of revenue, should have really positive impacts on your life overall. It's such a great point and one that we hear from advisors all the time, especially those um, who've been in the game for a little bit and who are adding this skill set, this capability set to their repertoire. And for many of them, they also find themselves in a circumstance where they need it for their own families. Right. They need to be thinking about fair and equal. They need to be thinking about who has a voice in this decision, who has a vote. They need to be thinking about, you know, we have another rule of thumb called today, someday. And, and that's, do, do I... Do I give an inheritance today or do I wait until someday when I'm dead? And, you know, when we, when you have a, a, a teenage child or a college age child and you're navigating all of the same things your clients are, I can tell you my family, you know, leaving a family business in uh, starting a new career, uh, becoming a family of wealth, I wouldn't be where I am today in my own personal life without a more introspective and reflective approach. And, and I, you know, I'm so thankful every day on how it shaped me as a father of three kids, as a husband, as a son to, you know, an entrepreneur and, and a matriarch, uh, to a brother who, you know, is, is, uh, formerly in the family business together. Uh, so I, you know, Austin is such a great point because we find so many advisors, you know, the successful ones, they're facing all the things their clients are facing. And to have the skill, it doesn't just help their clients, it helps them. And I think the earlier you can start that, the better it is for your practice and, and frankly, for your clients, because the earlier you all have the right conversation, you know, we, in, in succession planning, when we work with family businesses, we talk about the runway. And we say, if, if you give me a short runway, it's really hard to land the plane. You give me a long runway and I guarantee you I land it. And the shorter the runway, the harder it is to um, help families navigate more challenging topics and conversations. Yeah. When I work with families with teenagers and college age, we're, the runway is long, you know? And, and when I work with an 80-year-old, the runway is really short. Right. And it's hard. I think that's that's actually a really good segue to um, a, a different type of question, which is I'm sure many listeners would be interested in um, any any trends or any um, discussion topics that are prevalent within the ultra high net worth space. Because obviously, as a financial advisor, you know, being able to attract the 25 to 50, 
hundred plus million dollar of investable asset household is you know, oftentimes a goal. So I'd be interested in your work with those families of significance. You know, what are some of the trends that you're seeing and how how do the advisors that manage these individuals well um, interact with the family as a as a system? Uh, I think you, you used that that word earlier, I, I believe. Yeah. How do they do that effectively? So a couple of things. Uh, one, very tangibly, right? Um, high net worth and ultra high net worth clients are not looking for a yes person, right? They're not looking for an expert only. They're looking for a partner. They're looking for dialogue. They're looking for uh, co-creation. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a great example. My mom, when she you know, had liquidity and the type of liquidity you're talking about, and she was looking for a financial advisor. Her number one complaint was everybody was telling me about how hard it was going to be to move from a business asset to liquid assets that needed to be invested and that she was better off finding an expert and just letting them handle it. She said at one point, I remember she looked at me and she said, it's like I'm a damsel in distress and they all are just here to like be my knight in shining armor. At what point can somebody just look at me and say, let's tackle this together? So I think that's one. I like that. That's that's a super important point for people that are listening to bias is that, again, it comes back to that whole uh, mental model expert um, sales mindset that to your point, why would you... Why would you assume that a family post a liquidity event would have any less ability to understand and partner with someone around their liquid assets? I mean, that's a that's a very very good point. So I just wanted to, and it's and it's rooted, Austin, in the comment of I have expertise that I'm bringing and I have credibility, and I want you to know that you're you're that's what you're getting when you get me. Right. And the idea here is. You have to have the skills to understand somebody and their unique situation. Whether you believe it's unique or not is another thing. It's can you really truly connect and find the uniqueness in their lives, their situations, and really be there to understand. And I think that takes just a ton of skills, empathy, curiosity, vulnerability, skills that are very tangible things that can be taught and practiced. Uh, so that's one. I think another one is uh, this: this today, someday. Uh, a lot of the boomers, and you know, gosh, this pet. You know, I, I read this. I watched this wonderful YouTube piece uh, about you know the pandemic as an accelerant versus a change agent, mm-hmm. and it's something that's really resonated with me. It's accelerating where we were going to be at some point in the future to today. An example of that is uh, the boomers are really struggling with today, someday. They're struggling with, what do I do with my wealth? And how do I think about it today so I can participate, be a part of it, see it, engage with my children, my grandchildren, you know, as they utilize it, they benefit from it versus I put it in my will for someday and they'll get it maybe when they're 60 or they're 80. And and, and what's the trade-off? The balance between entitlement and um, and ruining children versus, which is really what we often to, you know refer to as the burden of wealth versus the opportunity of wealth. What can we create? How can we leverage? How can we create new? So we spend a lot of time in that space. And um, you know, 
this latter one is is a very important topic right now if if you want to serve high net worth and ultra high net worth clients is helping them think about and navigate that and not just navigating it you know with you know really airtight trusts and uh strategies for asset protection you know whether that's a prenup or otherwise but to think truly about in a creative way and i'll give you an example i was um i was talking to a client the other day who uh was in this in this kind of realm that you're speaking of and their one child wants to buy a uh, a vacation rental as an investment property and there's a lot of really good reasons for it i think you know the property is right next to where they live and uh so they're controlling you know, assets, it's, it's on the water, it's great real estate, but it's expensive. And, and I, I was so struck by their financial advisor and the wisdom that he brought, uh, because he looked at them and he said, look, there's one thing is for sure to, to this, to this patriarch he said, I can get you a better return than this vacation rental will get the family. But my job is not just to think about your returns. My job is to think with you about what the family needs, about how this impacts your other children, about how we should be thinking about a structure for helping children in the future. Make this a process, not a one-off. He said, my job is to help you see the unintended consequences of this and to talk them through financially, whether that is what happens if you choose to do this as a loan and he can't continue to make the payments. How does that impact your relationship? How does that impact your engagement? What are you willing to forgo? How does that impact your other children? These are the types of conversations that are what we call family wealth system conversations. If you only see the individual decision maker as your client and you don't see the whole family, I think you're missing it. And, I, and I'll leave you with a quote on that that I got from, again, from my mentor, uh, Dr. Tim Habershon. And he said he, he took a job with a family, um, a very wealthy family. And uh, when he took that job, he, he looked at the patriarch and he said, I understand conceptually, I mean, functionally, that I work for you and that you're paying me. But I need you to understand conceptually that I work for the family. And that's very different because as soon as the work for the family is not in the best interest of the family, then we need to reevaluate what I'm doing here with you. And I love that mental model. Are you only seeing the primary decision maker or do you see the whole? If you want to be a high net worth or ultra high net worth advisor, you better see the whole and have the vulnerability and the courage to step in. And that's all skill-based. I love it. I love it. Tobias, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, again, just thank you very much. This has been really fun. Thanks for the conversation, Austin. Thank you to all of the listeners and a special thank you to Tobias for participating today. We really appreciate it. Just as a reminder, stay tuned for future episodes coming soon. Stay safe and wear a mask.